I've devoted myself my entire life to unpacking the problem of the last frontier of feminism, right? The, the equality in the home and how it's really tied to every single thing women hope for outside the home. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. Hey guys, a quick heads up before Eve's interview. As we know and love, she is one spicy woman. And so there is some swears in this interview. So for those of you that listen with little ears around, this is not the one to do it with. But we believe that every woman should be herself. And that is Eve. So without further ado, here is the interview with author Eve Rodsky. Today on the podcast, we have author Eve Rodsky. Eve, as you know, Abby and I are such enormous fans of your book. We just finished reading Fair Play with our Patreon members. This was a book that helped change the dynamic in both of our relationships and provided us with a system to help make things more fair inside of our marriage when it comes to household duties, kiddo duties, and all the things that come with being adults. We're excited to dive into these topics today because we know that this is a message that our community needs, but I would love it if you started by introducing yourself to our listeners. Well, again, Abby, Amy, I really appreciate your um, your cultural warrior status um, of bringing, as we were saying, um, pre-gaming, how triggering some of this work can be. But my name is Eve Rodsky. I'm the author of the New York Times bestseller, Fair Play. Um, and what I like to say is that I didn't set out to be an expert on the gendered division of labor. It wasn't something on my third grade, what do you want to be when you grow up board? Um, but for me, uh, this work, um, the work that I do now, which is really to look at um, and examine why women shoulder two thirds or more of what it takes to run a home and family um, and what we can do about that. And then the through line of my next book, which is called Find Your Unicorn Space, which is about the same issues, the idea that we lose control of our time when we are um, drowning um, in unpaid labor and childcare and how wonderful it would be, Abby and Amy, right? When we've been taught since birth to give away our most valuable currency, which is 100% time. Time is our most valuable currency. And from birth, women are taught to give it away. We're taught to give it away to others. And um, how glorious would it be if we actually got to keep some in our pocket and grow our, our time wealth in service of ourselves for ourselves? So those are the big things I think about. Um, and as I move into this next phase of my work, I'm really looking at the permission to be unavailable. Why is it that women, we are allowed to be parents, partners, and or professionals. And by professionals, I mean, people who work inside the home or out, but the idea of sustained attention for things that we love outside of those three P's, um, is still very subversive. 
And that's, those are the questions I'm, I'm bringing forth to uh, society these days. And in your work, I mean, just in that answer already, those are the answers that we wish more of our community had because they're asking us, Eve, all the time about, you know, how can we make this more fair? And that two thirds or more of what it takes to run a home and family falling on the woman. Like, no wonder we're so stressed out. No wonder we're feeling this heavy, heavy, heavy burden um, because there is more work on our plates. And even Amy and I, we both agree that we have solid partnerships with our husbands, but there are still things that we're stubbing our toes on. All three of us know how demanding being a mother is. And like you said, a lot of those household responsibilities, they fall on us. So in your book, you brought up a situation where you were with your friends and all of a sudden there were text messages that were coming in from the partners that were saying, you know, I mean, all sorts of things about backpacks and soccer bags. And the ending consensus was maybe if we should just skip lunch and go home because it would be easier if we were there. And most of the women, these intelligent, passionate, amazing women, they felt like they had to get home to help find soccer bags and birthday gifts as if their partners truly couldn't. So how do you think that families get to this place of depending so much on mom? Well, I think it's a great question. And, and I think a lot of the cultural critics um, in my space, we ask ourselves, how is it um, that the most radical notion um, one of the most radical notions for society is men taking care of their kids alone. Why is that so hard to digest and understand that a man could take care of his children alone? And that's what that day showed me. Um, because uh, as you both know very well, um, this research started as me search 10 years ago. Um, I'm at my blueberries breakdown anniversary now. So um, we can celebrate that uh, together here. But, you know, for me, starting with a breakdown on the side of the road over a text that my husband Seth sent me that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. That was the, the zenith, you know, the dearth of, of, of uh, my identity and losing myself um, in a breast pump and diaper bag on the passenger seat of my car, gifts for a newborn baby to return in the backseat of my car, a client contract on my lap because I'd opted out of the traditional workforce at that time when I'm getting this surprise you didn't get blueberries text on the way texting and driving to pick up my older son, Zach, who was three at the time at his toddler transition program. I mean, we can all relate to the chaos of, of this message that having it all um, means doing it all. And I will say that I, the home is so small. That's why it's so dangerous, Abby and Amy, because um, I genuinely thought when Seth sent me that I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries text. And I find myself sobbing on the side of the road thinking, oh my God, I have nothing like the career marriage combo that I thought I was going to have. And my husband sees me as the fulfiller of his, of his smoothie needs. I thought that was my own problem. That's the crazy thing about 10 years ago. I didn't have an Abby and Amy. I didn't have a book club to unpack some of these culturally toxic messages. We didn't even have iPads back then. It was just invented um, in 2011. Um, so I had a, what to expect when you're expecting by my night table that basically just told me the size of my child was a pea or a jelly bean, but I had no idea what I was in for. The fact that everything I'd been sold as a woman was a lie. Girls run the war world. Like that's complete and total bullshit. And, um, as people like to say, I like to go dark to go light. So there's going to be some fun <laughs> and humor here, but I think the, the, the real realization was understanding that when I was on that breast cancer March with nine of the most powerful women that I knew 
including an Oscar-winning producer and the CEO of a huge nonprofit and the head of stroke and trauma for a big hospital. Watching all of those women be highly empowered women from nine to 12 on a Saturday morning and then lose themselves at 12 into 30 phone calls and 46 texts from our partners with questions, as you said, like, where's Hudson's soccer bag? What's the address of the birthday party? Why didn't you leave me a gift? My friend Kate's husband texting us or texting her, and we're all looking over her shoulder, do the kids need to eat lunch? And it was the collective responsibility of all of us to say, you are a, and most of us in that group were married to men, to say men can take care of kids on their own. I don't need to find a babysitter for them. I don't need to call my in-laws to help him babysit his children. But that's not what happened that day. What happened that day was every single one of those women said, I left my partner with too much to do. And they they did leave me there to find the perfectly wrapped gift and bring it to a birthday party and to feed their kids lunch. And that was the day I decided that I was going to start devoting my life to unpacking what was happening around me because it did not feel right. And it all the good news was I was starting to realize it wasn't just my own problem around frozen blueberries. It was, it was a bigger problem. And over the past 10 years, I've devoted myself my entire life to unpacking the problem of the last frontier of feminism, right? The, the equality in the home and how it's really tied to every single thing women hope for outside the home. That what my realization was, was that for women to step into their full power outside the home, it doesn't require us grabbing a drink with a friend or getting up a freaking hour earlier, any of this toxic self-care advice. What it requires is for men to do childcare and housework. That's, 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 that's the solution. That's the answer. And I love that you are giving these examples and And before we jumped on the interview and we were just talking and we said, this is really triggering for some women, because if you haven't thought about these things, or maybe what happened to me, you guys, is that I got in some really bad habits really early on in my motherhood Mm -hmm. where I was carrying so much of the load. And it made me so very resentful that I was really lucky that I found authors like Eve to give me information that I didn't realize because I was just so socialized in a way where the best moms do it all. And then once I started learning about how women haven't really made very much progress inside of the home and what they do in the last three decades, like our load that we carry is not much different from our moms. And so how are we going to get anywhere unless we have people that are bringing up these conversations that can be hard and they can make you mad and they can be uncomfortable. And what came to mind when I was reading that part of the book is just this learned helplessness that we've given to our partners when we go save the day because we're willing to leave being outside of the home to come back and help inside of the home. So we're going to give some pushback today, um, but we're also going to give you guys some really good tools. And something you mentioned in your book was unfairness. And I've heard you on interviews 
and you stated resentment grows out of perceived unfairness. And Abby and I have both found so much truth to that. One area we find that in is the invisible load because that load gets very, very heavy, especially when it is not obviously shared, but also appreciated. Like your partner doesn't even see it. So I wanted you to give the listeners kind of the background of fair play and why you started to feel like it was so necessary to create this book and this system. Such a good question. Um, well, I think I'll just tell you what happened to me after the, um, the breast cancer March day, where it was, you know, I was able to become curious about what what was happening to me. And um, one of the articles I stumbled upon alongside with a lot of, you know, newer articles around emotional labor, the second shift, we may have heard that term mental load was a, a, a term coined in 1986 by a sociologist named Arlene Kaplan Daniels. And so it gets to what you just said, right? <laughs> 1986, same shit, different decade. And what she was arguing was that, you know, the home, the work of the home is invisible because it has to be because society, um, our dirty little secret is that our entire society, our foundation of our house is built on the unpaid labor of women. And, and when we allow women to rise, we tell them to outsource. So then it becomes on the backs of the undervalued labor of domestic workers and that dirty little secret is how capitalist patriarchy has worked. So it was a very interesting article because for me, the idea of invisible work, guys, it was like, duh, um, I'm great with a spreadsheet. So like if invisible work is the problem that the work will never be visible, then I'm going to make it visible. And so I had this naive idea that if I started a spreadsheet called the shit I do, which is where this project started, um, that became 98 tabs and 2000 items of invisible work over nine months, that that was the answer to my problems. And the should I do spreadsheet was a really fun exercise. In a lot of ways, it was the 101 we're doing for people now in this podcast. It was the recognition that there were other people out there who were fed up, angry, resentful at, about having to do it all and not be appreciated even in the process, let alone compensated for this work. But it was a fun process where I had women you know, say to me, um, it sort of went viral amongst communities, the way things could do only 10 years ago, meaning like not viral. We don't have, we didn't have like social media, um, in this way, but, uh, it was being sort of sent around. And so women, I didn't even know were calling me up saying things like, Oh, Eve, I saw, you know, you have a medical and healthy living tab, but I don't see sunscreen on there. And I'd say, well, then you obviously don't know how to use Excel. You got to scroll down, scroll down. It's tab, you know, 48 under medical and healthy living. And they'd say, oh yeah, I see it. It's two minutes for sunscreen, but what about the 30 minutes for the chase? And I'm like, oh yeah, 30 minutes for the chase. And it became this beautiful process. I finally sent it to Seth. And that's when I had my biggest realization because when I sent this, should I do spreadsheet to my husband? Uh, and admittedly it was with none of the context uh, of my day job, which is being trained in difficult conversations. I sent a should I do spreadsheet to Seth and said, can't wait to discuss. And, you know, he didn't even give me the courtesy of a response back. It was like the first version of a, those pixelated emojis where he sent me a monkey with covering its eyes. And I think that day when I realized that 
there was a see no evil in my home. It, it made me realize that lists alone don't work. And as women, we've been making lists for hundreds and hundred years um, or since at least since the industrial revolution and lists don't work. So that was the day where I realized I had three choices. I could get my gender division of labor right by what my friend said, you know, that she had three words for doing that. And it was called court ordered custody. I could um, resign myself to losing it all and losing myself in the process and just continue to do it all. Or I could, I asked myself if I was my own client, because I work for families that look like the HBO show succession, everyone should feel bad for me. But what I do for those families is I design organizational systems to make hard family decisions. And when I realized that the most important question I could ask and that I have asked in the past 10 years is what would it look like if we treated our homes as our most important organizations, that that's the solution, the solution would be in, in that question. A quick break from our sponsor, which is Rothy's. So looking good and feeling great just got easier thanks to Rothy's. From the unbeatable comfort to the fact that you can wash them, these shoes check every box. And you may have heard about Rothy's best-selling Point and Flat. In fact, People Magazine named the Point the best flat for their first ever style awards in 2021. But did you know that they also make other incredibly comfortable shoes? So Amy has the Chelsea and Fawn, and I actually just got them in black because I love them so much. You guys, these are so adorable. They are so comfortable. And like all their shoes, I'm so glad that I can throw them in the washing machine and they come out looking good as new. So this holiday season, take the guesswork out of gifting. Rothy's, they honestly have something for everyone. So treat yourself, or you can find the perfect gift for a loved one. With their ultra-comfortable, washable shoes, they also have bags and they have accessories. So if shoes aren't on your list, definitely check out their bags because they are absolutely adorable. If you're looking at winning the gift game this season with Rothy's shoes and accessories, know that you can also get $20 off your first purchase. So if you go to rothys.com slash herself, you'll be getting $20 off your first purchase. Again, that's rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash herself, and that'll get you $20 off a purchase for you or for someone you love. I love that part on how the to-do list on its own doesn't work, but creating a system that's what produces results. And if we do start treating our households like an organization that we actually manage together, I think that all of our partners, they will be more confident in that role and they'll be able to take a more confident stand. And one story, story that resonated with me was the case of the forgotten skis and how it was, honestly, Eve, it was one giant metaphor for leaving a little bit of us behind when we enter motherhood. And you used to be a huge skier. And when you finally took a family trip to take your kiddos skiing, your skis were the ones that were left behind. And change is inevitable. And when we become mothers, it's definitely inevitable. And there's a lot of change. But you also talk about why it's important to stay interesting. So for many of our listeners, they may be feeling really lost right now. They have let a lot of time go by. They have a lot let a lot of their self go by, um, and they're really not feeling like them. So how do you coach people to give themselves permission to be interesting again and permission to do the things that make them happy? And please explain, because I know there are many women who struggle with this specifically. Well, I think that's such a great question. And it's really why I felt like I had to write a whole another book about, about this, this idea, because I was getting sick of productivity specialists and creativity spaces and creativity experts being all 
white Christian men, you know, with, with a ton of privilege saying things to me, um, on these panels with them, uh, you know, cause I'm considered a productivity specialist in some of these panels and, and saying things like, well, you just need two uninterrupted days a week. You know, society has not even allowed us to have three minutes and 42 seconds. That's the average interruption gap that women have had since the pandemic. And so, you know, we have a lot of shaming messages that somehow we're supposed to be perfect in all of these areas. And it's really actually very, again, another subversive message is the antidote to burnout is not taking a walk around the block. Like I hear so many people say, or grabbing a drink with a friend, the antidote to burnout is being interested in your own life. And I can't tell you how to do that, but I can start asking you questions so that you can return. You can feel that there is a return to you and not a return to the old, maybe the old you. Um, because as you said earlier, Amy, um, there is growth, you know, motherhood, there's growth in what we've done and what we, in our roles and what we've been, but we don't have to be defined by them. And the hurdles to, to a creative life are what the first half of the unicorn space book is about. Um, and similar to fair play, that's the more triggering part. And then the second half is the program, right? That's the fun part. And I will say that the beauty of this podcast and seeing you together is you are a unicorn space example in and of yourself. So what you did, and this is the through line to the program in, in book two, is there's three things we need to start thinking about inter being interested in our own lives again. Um, we need curiosity. And by curiosity, I don't mean, as my friend said, well, the only thing I'm curious in lately is scrolling my friend's Venmo transactions. And, and <laughs> <That's> <laughs> quite the hobby. And that made me laugh. I'm like, what? what? I didn't even know you could do that. And then she showed me, and I was like, whoa, that's so creepy. I like know way too much now about like my, my acquaintances. But um, yeah, it means values-based curiosity, right? Understanding, you know, what's there, what are the values you live by? Um, instead of the roles you play, I ask a lot of people to question instead, what are the values you live by? And when you can substitute roles for values, it's a very powerful thing. And then what you could say, so I'll say, you know, I'm going to pretend, put words um, in your mouth and say that you are both, you know, Abby and Amy, you have the curiosity, right? You bring your, you're curious about what it looks like to be a more holistic version of motherhood, debunking some of these myths, um, supporting women. And then what you did next was you connected with each other and you said, we're going to do this together. And we're going to take the step of sharing our, ourselves with the world in a very vulnerable way. That is number two, curiosity plus connection. But the hardest part of all is the third C and that's completion. And I think that's the hard part that the, the opposite of burnout is really completion. Um, being interested in your own life is the idea that I can complete something. Um, and so what you have done is, you know, no matter what your guests say, or maybe they veered off, or maybe there's been mistakes in how you wanted to present, you still edit yourself and you put yourself out there that, that, so I'm going to argue, right. That your unicorn space is this podcast, or at least it's one of your unicorn spaces. And whether you got a dollar for it or a billion dollars for it, it's inherently important to keep going 
for your mental health and your longevity, because you're actively in those three C's of curiosity plus connection plus completion. And it does not mean perfection, but the more that we can push ourselves to, to marry those three things, the more that we regain our mental and physical health. And that's what the research showed. This is so interesting because I can see how your books are going to be so connected and valuable to each other because something that came up for me during that answer is my problem used to be that I didn't feel worthy of the time for myself. Mm -hmm. Like if I was, even if I was going on a date with my husband, like I could see why that was valuable to our family, but I didn't have the same permission to go on a date with myself to be alone and doing something away from the family. And you talk about this in your first book, Fair Play. In chapter three, you talk about toxic time messages. And this resonated with Abby and I both so loudly because these are things that we've had to work through. So you gave examples like a lot of, and I know a lot of women still believe these, I'll help you when I have time is something that your partner might say. He might say, you do unnecessary tasks. He might say, my time is worth more or time is money. And in the book, Eve starts to reframe some of these toxic time messages. One of the reframes she gives that really hit home with me is remembering that the stuff inside the home and with the family is not all on you. So she says, it's not all on me. It's on us. This is our home, our family, and our responsibility. I would love if you broke down this idea of feeling worthy of your own time and these time toxic time messages a little bit more for our listeners. It's so important. And thank you for, for recognizing how triggering and how important these cultural messages are um, to debunk because it became so important that I had to write a whole nother chapter about it in unicorn space around the permission to be unavailable because this idea that as we started with, you know, when you asked me, what am I doing today? Or what's my, my focusing on? And I said, really, it's this idea that time is our most valuable currency. And we've been conditioned and taught since birth as women to give it away. And that's why I'm focusing here on the hetero cisgender marriage or partnership, because this does happen. There are defaults and um, imbalances. And so a lot of my beta testers are actually single parents and same-sex couples in the LGBTQIA community. But a lot of the devaluing of time comes from these heteronormative messages that don't benefit men or you know women or men, really. And as you said, it comes down to understanding that this advice we get, you know, to wake up an hour earlier to, you know, to say no, you know, it's, it's just, it just makes me laugh because it's just completely devoid of the context of, um, how can we tell women to say no, to set a boundary, to say no. When for, for me, at least for 35 years, I'd been taught to say yes in service of others. Right. It just feels so it's almost like a laughable. So really the self talk that we're talking about here, these toxic time messages start with an understanding that as a society, since birth, we have been conditioned to view and value men's time as if it's finite, like diamonds and treat and use women's time as if it's infinite, like sand. And we know that women's time is devalued because, um, when women enter a male profession, 
salaries automatically go down. We say things in society like breastfeeding is free, um, which is hilarious because it's 1800 hours. It's a full-time job a year. But the hardest thing is, is Abby and Amy, you were saying, addressing earlier was how we speak to ourselves. And for me, it was, there were four things that surfaced to the top that women were saying to themselves that we have to retire. Number one is that my job is more flexible or I do more unpaid labor and domestic work because my partner makes more money than me. That is a toxic time message. Time is not money. Time is time. We just get 24 hours in a day and we cannot look at it as money because at the end of the day, if we do, it will continue this vicious cycle of same shit, different decade till for, for, for hundreds and hundreds of more years. We have to look at it as our collective responsibility for our home organization and, and divest who does what from who makes more. Number two was hearing, I'm a better multitasker. I'm wired differently for care. That was my toxic time message. And when I finally got to sit down with a neuro, one of the top neuroscientists in the world who said to me, when I asked him, aren't women better multitaskers? Aren't we wired differently? And he said, culturally or biologically? And I said, well, duh, biologically, you're the neuroscientist. And he said, no, there's no brain difference between men and women for multitasking. In fact, he said men are actually a little better at it if, if you actually really do look for it in the gender. But I never say that because I don't want to completely blow our minds. But what it comes down to, he said, culturally is that, you know, we men have convinced you women that you're better at wiping asses and doing dishes. And how great for my leisure time and my tenure and my career that I don't even have to convince you to wipe the asses and do the dishes. You want to do it. And you tell me I'm not good at it. Right. So that was the hardest one for me to hear. Cause that was my toxic time message, you know, did a, a very gendered thing and started to cry, cry in his office, but it felt, it was very hard to hear that. The third most common was in the time it takes me to tell him, her, they, what to do. I should do it myself. That one is just a classic devaluing. That's a present value issue of devaluing of your future time. Any economist will tell you that's a terrible way to look at your time. Of course, it makes sense to teach, quote unquote, someone how to wipe the asses and do the dishes now so that you don't have to do it in the future. And finally, it was, yeah, we're both colorectal surgeons, but my husband is better at focusing on one task at a time and I can find the time. And so, you know, what I'm here to say is that we're not Albert Einstein, right? We can't fuck with a space-time continuum. But what it is, is there's just a different expectation over how women are supposed to use our time. And God forbid we use it outside of those three Ps. God forbid we use it outside of being a parent, a partner, and or a professional. It is highly subversive that we would get time choice over how we use our day. And that is the core, that is the crux of the messages of fair play and unicorn space that we deserve as women equal time choice over how we use our day as, as our male counterparts. And we're still in the beginning stages of those messages. Society's not ready to hear those yet. And so that's why you're cultural warriors alongside with me here, because we're unpacking some really, really deep rooted cultural messaging that we, we received from birth.
You know, during the holidays when you are so full of goodness that the last thing you want to do is put on jeans, that's a really good time to turn to third love. And as you guys know, Abby and I completely love their bras, but they have so much more than that. Whether it's their activewear, their sleep and loungewear, they have something for you. One of my personal favorites is their weekend Terry jogger, which are elevated sweat. They're sweats, but they look really good. You might have someone on your list if you are doing some late shopping, and that would make the perfect gift for them. It's something that a lot of us that love athleisure would be so excited to get. So I've loved everything that I've got for Third Love, and that's why I was excited to shop it for the holiday season for some of my friends and family. So Third Love brings comfort from the sheets to the streets. They have the softest sleepwear, washable silk, bras that you don't want to take off when you get home, and 90,000 five-star reviews that don't lie. You know that you're in good hands if you're with Third Love. So right now, you guys can get 20% off your first order if you go to thirdlove.com slash herself. That's 20% off your first First order at thirdlove.com slash herself. Well, and Eve, we can be the change like this. It'll keep on going on like this if we continue to do it. And you said the one on the better multitasking. I can definitely fall into that. But you're one of I should just do it myself because it would take me less time than trying to figure out how to describe it to him and teach him how to do it. I mean, I fall into that one all the time. And I think of all the ones that you mentioned right now, someone can see themselves saying it or doing it or falling into those roles. So I'm just on fire a little bit right now with that, those answers of just wanting to make some changes within our own home. And your book has already helped with that within our book club we have so many women who are just transforming the way that they do life with their partners because of the work that you're doing and i know that right away in your first few chapters of fair play you mention how you hope to save women from burnout you want them to have more space for self-care you want them to quit scorekeeping you want them to not have to feel like they're always nagging and like check 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 all those things i know i want i know so many of my friends want that as well and these are all topics that have been brought up so many times in this community but what about that concept of saying, like our partners, and I, I, I even know Colin has said this, like, why didn't you just ask me to do it? Or you didn't remind me, so I forgot. And Eve, it's, it's having to be in charge of the reminders that it gets to me. Like it makes so many women, myself included, just want to jump and finish that task. So I used to do this all the time. I still fall in it from time to time. And I know that many of our listeners struggle with this as well. So how do you, how do you recommend stopping ourselves that we can steer clear of the resentment and then that learned helplessness on our partner side? It's such a great question. And I, I think all I can say and what, what you, what you mirror back to me is so beautiful. Um, this idea, you know, that we were talking about this a little offline, you know, starting where you are, that you don't have to have all the answers that, you know, if we've been conditioned in my case, you know, I've been doing this work for 10 years and the practice of boundaries, systems, and communication that fair play offers is a practice, right? It's a practice. Um, and when you look at it as a practice, you can be kinder to yourself. And what I will say is, you know, it's, it will always, it will always be a practice. Um, and I'll give you one quick two minute story because I think it showcases what the practice of fair play looks like in real life. And it's small. 
the beauty of this system is that it's small, which means that small changes can make huge, huge difference in your life. It's a kaleidoscope, right? You just, you turn it a little bit and then you get transformative change. Um, this one couple, I'll call them Richard and Amy, they were uh, playing fair play during the pandemic. Um, they came to it because he said, um, oh, you want me to treat my home as, he was one of the early interviews for me who said, you know, you want me to treat my home as my most important organization, Eve? Well, that's the opposite of, you know, our house where we wait to take the dog out, right? When it's about to take a piss on the rug. And I said, yep, that, like whatever that is, the opposite of that, you know? And what, what this couple said to me was that they went through the exercise. Um, a, a lot of systems thinking is, is explicitly defined expectations, onboarding, having really important conversations early so they don't have to have the conversations again um, as deeply. Uh, that's the time-saving part. And so they had the conversation. They, they, they played the deck the way it's supposed to be played, which is they, they went through each card and they decided which they want to keep in their deck, which they want to take out. Um, that's how you prevent fair play from becoming a list, right? You don't just throw the cards at someone and say you have to do something. You really want to examine and build your deck together. And so in building their deck together, part of the beauty of fair play is you tell your stories. And so they both told each other a story about how magical beings was a card they wanted to keep in the deck. They both felt very uh, moved by the tooth fairy growing up. They really liked the idea of Santa. Um, Amy is Irish. So she has um, something called lucky leprechaun or something. I, I always forget the exact name, but they really were leaning into the magical beings and Richard says, you know, I, I'm, I want to redeal and take that card. So he's holding the magical beings card and their daughter loses her second tooth. And, um, as you can probably predict from the story, the tooth fairy did not come that night. And so what Amy reported back to me was that before fair play, what would have happened was that she would have revert, reverted back to what I call in fair play, a verbal assassin, toxic word choice, where she would have said things to Richard, like, well, we tried this and you're obviously completely incompetent. You've ruined our children's life. You've ruined her life. You've taken the magic away from her. And Richard, what he told me, he would have blamed Amy for not reminding him to put the dollar under the pillow. That was their dynamic. So post fair play, what happens is she holds her tongue and she says, um, you know, in the spirit of the game, I'm going to let you carry through your mistake, understand that I'm really not happy and I'm sad, but I'm going to hold, hold my communication for when my emotion is low and my cognition is high, which will be later. And, but I trust you to carry through your mistake. So Richard tells me that he emails toothfairy at gmail.com, which creepily, and thank God for whoever you are out there gets a response from this account that says that, oh, sorry, I didn't come to your house last night. We're backlogged on teeth retrieval. And he prints out the email for his daughter, shows it to her and says, oh my God, look, you know, I got a response from the tooth fairy. She's backlogged on teeth retrieval. But the good news is she says, when she comes late, she brings double the money. And that's what happened. The tooth fairy came the next night and she brought double the money. And now his daughter asks whether she's going to come late again so she can get double the money. I don't know what else to say about that, except for I love that story so much and them recounting it to me because it feels small, but it, in my, my world, it's so big. It's literally so big. It is the transformative change, that kaleidoscope 
um, from just these small patterns, um, the recognition that you can carry through your mistake, that there's, sa there's safety for men to make mistakes, that there's responsibility, that you've discussed it in advance. So you're not fighting over who's the tooth fairy in the moment. There's just so many beautiful fair play lessons to me. And I want to honor Richard and Amy. I love you. Thank you for, for sharing your story with me. I was reading something by John Gottman this morning, and he said that trust is built in the very, very small moments. And I think that that story is the perfect example of like they needed to build trust in each other. And that happens in small moments. And it's going to keep happening over and over again for them and all of us. But if we go the approach of roasting our partner and then not letting them play anymore, that's not getting us any further than we were. Um, I wanted to dive into this next question and it is about the word help. I actually read this question to my husband right before we got on the call because I think this is such an important concept. And you say that the word help means this is not my job. I'm doing you a favor. It implies that it's my responsibility and that the helper is going above and beyond. But we believe, Abby and I and Eve, that full partnership means taking on fair responsibility. So it isn't that the woman is constantly asking for help or constantly reminding the partner what to do. It's that he can take some authority inside of the coupleship and he knows what his roles are and he does it. It's the whole concept of your deck. So Eve, for those people that are still stuck in the helper dynamic, how can they start to get away from it? Such a great question. Um, I hate the word help, as you now know, um, because it doesn't reflect anything healthy about organizational management. And at the end of the day, what I realized was that or, the word help equates to a classic organizational failure that were actually really easy to remedy. All the stuff we just talked about is the hard part. We got that out of the way, the triggering work, the fact that your time is diamonds, the boundary that you set to get yourself to the table to assert that you deserve to live a different way, which is why I ultimately I write to women because sometimes we as the oppressed have to have to use our agency to make our lives different, to be the game changer. But at the end of the day, what help is, was answered, Abby and Amy, by by the second most important question I ever asked in my fair play journey after what would happen if we treated our homes as our most important organizations. The second most important question I asked in 17 countries that changed my life, I know, and many others that are using the concepts of fair play was how did mustard get in your refrigerator? And it's such a great question because everybody has condiments. All cultures have condiments. So I could ask it in 17 different countries um, and substitute out mustard for different condiments if, if that wasn't one that resonated. But what I heard was universal. It was culturally universal, you know, in a way that I was shocked by. And it was women who were in partnerships with men would notice that their second son, Johnny, likes French's yellow mustard with his protein. Otherwise he chokes, he won't eat it. And it felt important to them that their child ate protein. So that's a phase called conception, right? We get paid big bucks for that in the corporate workforce when we notice new ideas, um, we come up for, with solutions for them. 
So there's, there's that. Then there was, oh, I, and yeah, of course I have to monitor the, the yellow mustard for when, for when it's running low and get my stakeholder buy-in from everybody else in the house for what they need on the grocery list. I mean, I didn't technically hear stakeholder buy-in, but I was listening for that as an organizational management specialist. Um, that's also a phase of, of project planning we know. That's called planning, planning. Um, and we also get big, big bucks for that. And then finally I would hear, oh yeah. And then Eve, uh, you know, I send Steve to, to, to the store for the French's yellow mustard and he brings home spicy Dijon every time. And and you you want me to trust him with my living will? Well, um, good luck with that because he can't even bring home the right type of mustard. And that's the execution phase. And so why Fair Play became a love letter to men was that is so fundamentally unfair to be someone who's stuck as an executor. That's a helper. A helper is somebody who has control, but no context, as many organizational management specialists would call it. Somebody who is a helper, who helps you execute, whereas you hold the conception and planning is someone that has the opposite of what we want as a partner. They hold no motivation. Because what we see is that when you are just pulled in to execute on someone else's conception and planning, there is a lack of motivation there. And so when I could see that actually the solution was very easy, when you keep the conception, planning and execution together, you move from a helper to an owner, it's revolutionary. But what holds us back is the other shit that we were just talking about. That's why we had to spend so much time on it. All the cultural conditioning that keeps us in the dynamic of women holding the mental load, the cognitive labor, the conception and planning so that we have no uninterrupted space to dream, to, to, to ideate, to tinker. That is what the ownership mindset does for you. It transfers over from a helper to an owner. And that is the real, the conception planning execution staying together in an ownership mindset, whether it be for breakfast or cooking dinner or for extracurricular sports or for school forums is the beauty. And, and that, that's the fair play revolution. Everything about that answer, Eve, this ownership and that full responsibility, that was the biggest thing that Colin and I pulled from your book. So when we played the cards for the very first time, what we found is that Colin actually had more than half the deck. So from the outside world, things honestly looked pretty fair. However, I was the one who was helping with a lot of his tasks because we were taking the team approach in that planning and conception part of it. And this happened, like you mentioned, with dinners where he would make the meal, but I'd be in charge of the planning of the menu and the grocery shopping. It continues to happen with doctor's appointments. So that's the one that I definitely right. keep working on. Yes. <laughs> By the way, me too. For some reason, you know, I, as you know, I'm the Atkins of fair play, but but, but we, we can't seem to, and I think it's because the cultural conditioning of the doctor's offices, like they keep, they, they will text him or me, or they don't get like who's in charge. So they're not helping mm -hmm. us with our fair play, you know? <laughs> well, the Kiefer's have it down to a science now, like they have it figured out. So I definitely have to take a page out of their playbook, but the remembering of to get the next one in the books and scheduling the appointments and then actually going into it, like if those are all the same person's job, there wouldn't be all the wiggle room of forgetting something or not having a kid's appointment when all of a sudden they're 15 months old and haven't had their year-long appointment yet. I, I ended up, um, Seth took um, medical and I took dentist. And actually okay. th that has been really, really helpful because he does medical and specialists. 
and I hold everything dental care right now. And I will say that that feels like a fair, it's been feeling, it's definitely feeling more fair to him now as my kids enter orthodonture. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> I would never want that dental card as a freaking nightmare. So maybe um, that's a good way to start thinking about it is like, okay, I'm going to, we'll, we'll make a list of what specialists, what doctors are here and you own uh, these doc doctors and I own these dentists, you know? And then the other thing that another couple did was they did all specialists like eye care, dentist, dentist with one person, and then just primary care with the other. So that was another interesting way that someone reported back to me that they split the, the, the medical and healthy living work. Well, that's a good transition, even for families who are like, I can't have one person take on all the medical appointments. It's like if you break it down with between eye appointments, dentists, medical, it does make it, you know, a little bit more bite-sized bites or whatever that I can't even think of. The way. <laughs> it makes it a little bit easier to take in than taking the entire card over. Exactly. But um, yeah, and one thing, Eve, is that we felt like Colin and I, we felt the team approach was a great solution. And then in your reading, you made us really start to second guess this. So if we're both in charge of something, it makes the whole situation less efficient. And I'm a person who I love efficiency. So when I heard that, I'm like, oh my goodness, I need to change this right now because we both have the mental load. And instead of just trusting the other person with the task, there needs to be this check-in that we're not doubling down or doing the opposite, which means nothing is moving forward. So in all of this, what do you recommend doing instead? Well, I think that's such a great question. I mean, a great answer because what the beauty of having now thousands of interviews in a longitudinal study, the real problem was people were, and this happens, and I'm not blaming you at all. This this happens, you know, to all of us because we don't really, we're, we're not, who would be steeped in organizational management science, right? Except for like the losers like me who do, do this for a living. But what you realize is that the team approach can can can, can be conflated with, intensive togetherness. And so what I'm here to tell you out there is that of course fair plays a team approach, meaning the right type of team, which is a team where everybody has what I call SOPs, right? Standard operating procedures and the direct DRIs, directly responsible individuals. So you can be part of a team, but the best teammates are ones that have individual motivations because they have individual responsibilities. For example, if you go into a presentation at your workplace and then someone else takes over your presentation for you, it would feel terrible, right? Because all of that conception and planning that went into this, you want to be able to take it over the finish line. That's motivation. When, then you feel like your work is stolen or that, and that team approach feels terrible. So often we're living in toxic teams, whereas a real team approach is understanding that I um, empower you to own this responsibility. And, and then I empower you to own this one. And then we can redeal when things are maybe not working. We sit down for the communication practice of checking in when emotion is, high, is low and cognition is high. And we can assess how it's working, recognize it's a practice and continue to iterate on it. Those are the best teams, the teams that each, each person feels that they have explicitly defined expectations, that they know their role and their fairness and transparency. But to get to that type of teamwork requires an investment in the individual. And that's the problem. The problem is that people equate team with intensive togetherness. And that doubling up is incredibly inefficient. And it leads to an incredible amount of unsaid assumptions that end up creeping in because communication is not there. So you always are communicating, but do you wanna be communicating an assumption 
or do you want to be communicating in a place of open motivation where you look at each other as, as motivated partners that want to support each other and who you each want to become? That's a very different way of looking at a team. I loved that answer because it is just like, you need some ownership over things. Otherwise the ball gets dropped because you are assuming your partner is going to do it. And, and so it just relates so well to the way businesses run the best way. And if you're on a good team, you know, who is doing what and taking the task to completion. Um, so that makes total sense to me. Eve, we've talked so much about your book, Fair Play, and Abby and I recommend it to every single person that's listening. Eve's book, Unicorn Space, is going to come out on December 28th, and we will be the first people to purchase it. So look for that one coming out too. But Eve, besides your books, please tell people where they can find more of you. Uh, At Fair Play Life is all the fun solution-based stuff. And then the, the dark the darkness that, that we've delivered in the beginning of this podcast. If you want to see more of that, um, my personal Instagram too, that's a little more rageful and angry, um, and systems based. <laughs> it's, it's definitely understanding that, you know, as Vivian, that Vivian green quote, you know, life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. It's a recognition that, um, we can, we can get wet, but there are antidotes that's unicorn space and, it may not be dry and 72 and sunny, but I'm also fighting for us to have sunnier skies through universal childcare and paid leave. Um, so you can find more of that at my personal Instagram as well. But I, I so appreciate you both in your willingness to go there, to share your personal experiences with fair play as a practice um, so that others can feel free to practice and succeed and fail and thrive and be messy that's, that's my gift for all of us that we can live in all the full dimensions of ourselves. Oh, well, thank you so much, Eve. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can find more of Eve on Pursuing Her Purpose, episode four. And in this episode, you really take a deep dive into those toxic time messages and you're speaking to the working mom specifically. And as always, thank you so much for listening. And we would love if you shared this message with your friends.